Uh, well, today we bring to close our series on Samuel's life. It's been a brief look, and there's been so much that we've had to leave out, of course, uh, because we haven't been studying the book of 1 Samuel. Instead, we've been looking at Samuel's life and some key moments and transitions that have taken place so that we can draw uh, some uh, application uh, to our own life. As a part of the backdrop to our study of Samuel's life uh, was the other former prophets, particularly uh, Joshua and Judges. We needed to bring in background material from them. And also, because we were studying from the former prophets, we've spent a good bit of time in Deuteronomy because it is a narrative form of the teaching that we find in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we've been looking at those moments of transition and to see how he acted, how he lived during those times. And the interesting thing is Samuel has continually been forced off the stage because we've needed to look at Saul or we've needed to look at David. And that's a lot of how you would sum up Samuel's life. He was God's man working in the background to see that God's work was done. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. Would you stand with me as we read from 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 7. Now Samuel had died, and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shum, and Saul gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. I just want to hit my head and say, Saul, when are you going to learn? Stop looking at the armies of the Philistines and look at your God. I mean, week after week, we're seeing this. My goodness. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. <laughs> when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to the servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, we pray that you will give us clarity to understand what you were saying to your church and to your people. Help us know, Lord, about how you want us to live out the gospel. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will speak to us today. And Lord, we pray that we'll have ears to hear and feet to live out the gospel that we hear. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we begin our reading with Samuel dying. Samuel is dead, but he's not through talking. You'll understand that statement more in just a minute. And I don't mean that his example lives on. 
Samuel will be speaking to us soon as Saul goes to a medium to call him back from the dead. Well, Samuel dies before David ascends to the throne. However, he did anoint him as king, acknowledging that God's blessing was upon him, and then also transferring the prophetic authority over to David. It was very important that the people knew not only did he have God's blessing, but that he had Samuel's blessing. Because Samuel was looking for something else, wasn't he? We learned that last week. He was looking for Saul 2.0, but learned that was not what God wanted for him. Well, towards the end of the message, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on Samuel's life, and I hope to kind of draw together the teachings that we've had for the last couple of months to help us to have an action step or two uh, for us to be able to apply. It's not enough for us just to admire the man that Samuel was, but we, we look at him and we look where he made mistakes and we look where he did things right, and then we make altered changes in the way we're going to live. I had someone say something to me very wise yesterday. She talked about how she had her pastor preach a series of messages on making predetermined choices. When something happens in your life to predetermine the person you're going to be and how you're going to act. Wow, what a... And she talked about how that prepared her for the loss of her husband. That when he passed away, how she had predetermined that she was going to be a woman of faith and trust in the Lord. Uh, during that time. Well, that's what I'm hoping will happen for us too. I think that's articulated well, is that we'll look at what Samuel did well and what he didn't do well and what the others, Saul, didn't do so well and so forth, and that we can preload a response to when difficult times come our way, that we will know the kind of man or woman uh, that we will be. Last week, Pastor Blake did a great job summarizing the greater context. He mentioned that Saul had tried to kill David at least seven times, and yet David faithfully uh, continued to serve Saul and the Lord. Seven times. I think I would have gotten a clue. <laughs> right? Seven times he tried to kill him. I mean, he's over there playing the harp and a spear is held at him, you know, thrown at him. You know, I've heard some folks play instruments poorly, but I've never wanted to chunk a spear at them. But uh, there you go. He was still faithful. He had opportunities to kill Saul and wouldn't do it. Why? Because God had anointed. He had chosen Saul to be king and Samuel had anointed him to be king. And you don't mess with God's anointing. You don't do that. So David was faithful through all of these years and all of Saul's misbehavior. Well, with that summary of Saul 16 to 27, so much for verse-by-verse -verse teaching, right? That's the summary of Saul, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 through uh, 27. We're going to look now at Saul's last day his last full day of life 
I meant to say. He spent his last day on earth banished from God's favor. He was fearful. He was anxious. And he sought out the help of a medium. A medium that he had banished from the land. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 11, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. Now, when you look at the one person, look at the group that they were bundled with. Right? And the book of Deuteronomy is clear. You don't dabble in those things. Now, a quick application of that is, folks, I don't read fortune cookies. I don't even do that. I don't read a horoscope. I don't do that. I don't do it for recreation. Uh, when I was younger and someone would say, let's get out a Ouija board, I said no. I want nothing to do with that. There are some things you don't flirt with. Now, I eat the fortune cookies, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I just, I just toss it away. I don't want anything to do with any of that stuff, right? Because there is a dark power that is real and will overtake people. And it will overtake you when you're vulnerable. Saul was vulnerable. He tried, he tried to have contact with God. And God wasn't speaking with him. He tried through various ways. And Saul had no communication. So when he was vulnerable and when he was weak, that's when the sin that so easily besetted him, his signature sin of rebellion took over. And he went far enough to say, get me a medium. He should have known better. His signature sin. I think all of us have one. I think all of us have a sin that it's easier for us to fall into than other sins. There are some sins that frankly don't tempt me, but others that grab at my ankles all the time. Are you the same way? Now, what we preachers tend to do is we preach against the one that we don't struggle with, uh, so, but we don't, we don't tend to mention the other. Actually, that's, that's not true. Uh, oftentimes, we tend to talk about the things we struggle with also. Especially in the last 20 years or so, where our congregations have wanted us to be a little more real and a little less plastic with them. And don't mind so much to realize their pastor's sin too and in need of God's forgiveness. But we all have a signature sin is the point. You do, I do, we all do. Signature sin. Do you hear the words that I'm using? It's as if it defines us. And short of the gospel, it will. You see, when God looks at my signature sin now, He can't see it because it's covered in the blood. 
It's been forgiven. It's been excised. It's gone. Nevertheless, for some in this room, the struggle is with addictive behavior. For some, it's anger. For some, it's lust. For some, it's laziness. For some, it's ignoring the people around them because they're pursuing the dollar bill so hard. For Saul, it was rebellion. From the beginning, we see Saul living a rebellious life. Do you remember what Samuel said to him in 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23? We covered it well. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and listen than the fat of lambs. Then verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now this is early on, shortly after he was anointed. His signature sin is magnified to the point that he rebelled against God. And it's almost as if Samuel was foretelling the future. When he says, what you're doing is no better than consulting a medium. Your rebellion against God and not submitting to him is the same as submitting to someone who lives in the dark world. Someone under the control of Satan. He says, your rebellion is the very same thing. And so I think it's very fitting that Saul spends his very last day on earth visiting a medium. Hmm. Saul disguised himself. He went to the medium's house under the cover of darkness. This is the king. No entourage. He should be riding on a mule, right? The king should be. He should be conducting himself in a certain manner. There should be armor bearers around him. He disguises himself. I don't know. I see him putting on a Groucho Marx face or something. I don't know. He disguises himself. In the cover of darkness, the king is sneaking around. And he goes to the medium house. And he asks her to call back a dead man to speak. She refused. I want you to see the contrast here. The king who kicked the mediums out of the land, he said, we're going to have none of that around here. When he needed, when he felt anxious, when he was afraid, that's exactly who he ran to. She doesn't know who he is at this point. She says, I can't do it. King says, we're out of business. Now, the fact that she's unemployed is going to be very important in a minute. Don't forget it. She's out of business. 
I can't do it. And Saul convinces her that he's not going to tell anybody, that nobody's going to find out, that it's going to be okay. And so she says, okay, who do you want me to get? He says, Samuel. She calls Samuel back from the dead. And when she sees him, she knows who's in her room. Saul assured her that he wasn't going to punish her. Now let's rejoin the text to hear the conversation with Saul, with Samuel's conversation with Saul in 1 Samuel 28, 15 through 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. Again, what's new? And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Listen to what Samuel says in verse 16. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. God's judgment was coming. Saul had not obeyed the command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And because of what he did, not only would he die the next day, but his sons would die in battle. And that's why I'm referring to this day as Saul's last full day of life, because in the next day is the one that he would die. When Samuel departed, the room was feared with fear. And Saul was reduced to a weak royal puddle. His royal highness, or should I say his royal weakness, was fearful and vulnerable. The woman, a sign of her humanity, the woman offers him something to eat. She says, you're weak, you look hungry. Now she just heard that this is going to be his last meal. He's about to die. Samuel said it. It was going to happen. She offers him a meal. He refuses her hospitality. And she insists. Now, right now is when I want you to remember what I said just a few minutes ago about her being unemployed. And I want you to see the kindness and this graciousness of this woman of darkness. 
She has very little, or at least she's not having anything come in. We see by her initial resistance that she was following the commands of uh, the king. And she insists. And she killed the fatted calf. Does that remind you of another passage of scripture somewhere? She killed the fatted calf and fed the king his last meal. You know, as we've been going through the story of Samuel, looking through his eyes at some of the key events that are chronicled in 1 Samuel, uh, on many occasions we've talked about the contrast that the author was writing with. It seems like throughout the book there are always in these stories contrast between those that are doing absolutely right and then another person that's doing absolutely wrong. Have you noticed that? Uh, you know, we saw Hannah's genuine faith and her spirituality against Eli's dull spirituality. Hannah, in all of her disappointment, chose not to be bitter. Instead, it drove her to her knees. Boy, if there's not a life lesson there for every one of us. Life is going to disappoint us, and there's going to be times that we think God has failed us. And you have a choice. You can get bitter or you can go to your knees. And Hannah went to her knees. And she prayed with such intensity that Eli didn't even recognize what she was doing. He thought she was drunk. And so we have this acute spirituality and, frankly, spiritual maturity of Hannah. And it's not that Eli was not a man of God or that God wasn't using him. He was using him. He's using him with Hannah and he's later going to use him with Samuel. But he's just dull. He's just slow. I think there may be another life lesson there that God can use all of us. God can use all of us. His will is never going to be thwarted by our sin. I'll say that again because you missed an opportunity to say amen. <laughs> His will is never thwarted by our sin. Amen. I mean, I know that man has free will. I also know that God is sovereign. And when we arm wrestle with God, he wins. Amen. He wins. Amen. I mean, we don't arm wrestle with him. You know, a synonym for free will is sin. Because when we're doing God's will, I don't want to claim it as my will, do you? And so, yes, there is free will. It does exist. But God wins our wrestling matches. He always wins. He is God. And that should give you assurance. When you remember that God is in control. And that God is going to win. And so... Oh, we see this contrast between her vibrant spirituality in the midst of a trial and Eli's dim-wittedness uh, to some degree. And then you have the corrupt priesthood of Eli's sons uh, versus the faithful work of Samuel, who, remember, was raised in the same environment. But the sons were corrupt and Samuel was the boy priest. And then you see the refusal of Eli to 
discipline his sons versus Samuel anointing a king in light of his son's immoral behavior. Both of them had sons that were corrupt. The difference between Eli and, and Samuel is Samuel did what God told him to do even after Samuel had missed an opportunity to take care of the problem himself. With Eli, he, he just turned a blind eye to it and didn't understand they weren't just his sons. They were working for him. And if he didn't have what it takes to discipline his, his sons, did he have what it takes to be serious about ministering to the people and discipline an employee? Well, no, he didn't. Now, it's interesting. It's interesting that Samuel made, you know, had some of the same outcomes, some of the same disappointments. Now, I think we're very quick to look whenever a father has a child that is errant, and it's, it's very easy for us just to blame the fathers if they did something wrong. There is no evidence that Samuel did anything wrong. I mean, not in the way he raised his sons. We raise our children to make choices, and they make their own choices. And sometimes those choices are not the ones we would make. But frankly, some of you just have bad memories. Sometimes they're making the same choices you made when you were younger. Do I have a witness in the room? Sometimes that's what's happening too. But we're quick to blame them. And it's always amazed me that we look at the prodigal son's father and often see him as an analogy for the way God behaves. But he had a son that was a prodigal and another one that he wasn't a prodigal, but he was a self-righteous creep, right? Is that the father's fault? Well, maybe it is. I don't know. But, I th you know, I think, guys, listen to me. We need to stop the blaming and the shaming in our church culture today. We need to just stop it. Now, conviction is good, but blaming and shaming is not. We're going to be covering some of that as we look into the book of Galatians. That's coming. But we don't need to be categorizing people because of the hardships they're experiencing. Well, we see that Samuel did the right thing when he was corrected. See, the difference between great men and other men is great men love correction, take it, and they turn on it, and they live a better life as a part of it. And then we have Saul's half obedience versus Samuel's full obedience. We have Saul's outward characteristics versus David's inward characteristics. Just at every turn in the narrative, every turn, we see a contrast being made. And this one blows my mind. The king of Israel has been reduced to a royal puddle in the kitchen of the witch at Endor. And she is his neighbor. In the same way the Samaritan was the neighbor to the beaten Jew on, on the road to Jericho. She was the one in this story that was neighborly. 
She kills a fattened calf. She gives a meal fit for a king to a condemned man. Well, the events unfolded just as Samuel said they would. But there was one more ironic twist to the story. It was not a Philistine in the battle that gave Saul the final death blow. Now, the Philistine gave the first injury. But in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 4, it shows Saul falling on his own sword. However, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, there is an Amalekite who brought the news to David about Saul's death. And he claimed to have found him leaning on his spear. Now in 1 Samuel, it's a sword. In 2 Samuel, it's a spear. And he finished him off at Saul's request. Now, if we were spending time in that narrative, we would learn it didn't end well for him. Uh, David didn't take that as good news that someone would kill God's anointed. And it cost that man his life that day. And, you know, as scholars look at these two things, they try to figure out which one of them is true. Well, they're both true. They're both in God's word. We have Saul who fell on his own sword, an Amalekite that claimed, that claimed, the scripture doesn't say he did it. It just says that he claimed to have finished him off. Regardless, Speaking of shame, speaking of irony, what was the command that God had given to Saul? He was to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And he said he spared the king. Now, you could spare the king and spare others and only say you spared the king. And I don't know how many of them survived. Maybe it was just the king. I don't know. But we do know that he did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. And now, at the end, it was an Amalekite who should not be living, whose people had acted in an unbecoming way to the children of Israel as they crossed over. It was an Amalekite who thought, like an Amalekite, that this would be good news. He was expecting to get some kind of reward. It was an Amalekite who brought the news to David. And by the way, as David now is able to ascend to the throne... He's got to walk through the Amalekites to do it. Because he's in the middle now of a battle with the Amalekites. All because of Saul's rebellion. What a pivotal event when Samuel said to him, or asked him the question about the lowing of the, of the oxen and the bleeding of the sheep. 
and said to him that rebellion was like the sin of witchcraft. It all is tied up together here at this part of the story. David's anointing beforehand now takes on this new significance. Because no, it wouldn't be Jonathan that would go on the throne. He died with Saul. And just as Pastor Charlie taught us a few weeks ago, he didn't lose his throne, but he lost his dynasty. See, this was the day that all of the ribbon is being tied up. The bows are being tied up, and it's coming to an end. God told him to destroy the Amalekites. Saul did not. And Saul's, the news of Saul's passing was delivered to the next king by an Amalekite. In stark contrast with Saul's tragic life, Samuel is an accomplished man. I don't think the comparison we need to make here is between David and Saul. That's a comparison for another day. I want to look, look at a comparison between the behind-the-scenes man of God and the front and center rebellious king. One was an accomplished man. He was an important figure who's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 in the Hall of Faith. He served as a priest, a judge, and a prophet. There are several of his accomplishments that the abbreviated amount of time that we've spent in this series has not allowed us to mention, so let me just mention them quickly. He appointed gatekeepers to the tent of meeting. You'll read about that in 1 Chronicles 9. He organized observance of the Passover so memorably, did such a good job with it, that it was still spoken of in Josiah's day, 2 Chronicles 35. He committed the manner of the kingdom to writing, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And he penned the chronicles of Samuel the seer in 1 Chronicles 29, 29. He was an accomplished man, but he wasn't a perfect man. This is a good point for me to remind you, as we often do, that this is not a story about Samuel. This is a story about God. He was an accomplished man, but he was not a perfect man. He erred greatly when he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel, which caused the people to ask for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you guys will put that up on the screen. This was very similar to the era of Eli, who did not control his wicked sons as they used the priesthood for their own gain. But Eli died on the, with his sons on the same day, but Samuel did not. He did not undergo God's wrath. And the reason was he received the correction from the Lord and did what the Lord told him to do. Later, he had a lapse in judgment about who would be uh, Saul's successor. But then the Lord corrected him in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord does not see a man sees, see as man sees man. He learns, looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, it would be very easy for us to look at Samuel and dis discount him because he doesn't meet our standard of perfection. He got it wrong. 
But when he got, wrong, got it wrong, he took correction. And he went with God. He went with what God was telling him to do. Samuel's contribution was not that he was always faithful and true. He was not. Like all of us, Samuel had his day. Samuel wasn't infallible, but he was teachable. He pivoted well when God told him, no, anoint a king. And then when God told him, no, this isn't the one you're wanting to anoint. Keep going until you find the right one. This is in contrast with Saul, who was presumptuous and self-serving. Though he had lapses in judgment, he listened to the voice of God. And the, another irony in this narrative is, do you remember where he learned to do that? From spiritually dull Eli. He was sleeping next to the ark. He heard a voice. He went in. What do you need, Eli? And Eli says, go back to bed. I'm trying to get some sleep here. Now, I'm an old guy. I understand that. I don't want anybody disturbing my sleep. <laughs> Comes back a second time and so forth. And finally, Eli gets it. Next time, next time you hear the voice, just say, I'm listening, Lord. And that's exactly what Samuel did for the rest of his life. It's not that he didn't err. It's that he received correction and he listened to the Lord. Samuel knew well what he told Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. See, he was prophet. He was a priest. He was a judge. He had offered sacrifice. Imagine to be the one that offers the sacrifice for the people of God. Could there be anything higher than that? To be the one that offers the sacrifice for the people of God. Well, Samuel said, yes. It's to obey. To obey. We've looked at this greater narrative and we've looked at some of the narrative episodes that have comprised the greater narrative. And friends, that's really what it boils down to. Are you listening to the voice of God? And are you obeying Him? If you are, then nothing else really matters. And if you aren't, well, nothing else really matters. To obey is better than sacrifice. An Old Testament principle, yes, and a New Testament one. John 14 and 15 says, If you love me, you will keep 
my commandments. Let's pray.